At around 6 in the evening, on June 6, 1966, Sidney B. Street left his apartment building in Brooklyn. He walked about a block away to the corner of Lafayette and St. James, and then he burned the American flag. Nobody would cast Sidney Street as a flag burner. He wasn't a hippie or a student radical. He was a 51-year-old decorated World War II veteran who worked as a bus driver for the New York Transit Authority. And he didn't have to go looking for an American flag to burn. He already owned two. One crisp new one with 50 stars that he flew on national holidays and an older faded 48-star flag that once covered his father-in-law's casket. That's the one that he chose to burn. When he did it, he laid a piece of newspaper carefully on the ground. And he lit the flag on fire with a match. And he held it, still perfectly folded for as long as he could, before he laid the burning flag down on the piece of paper so that it wouldn't touch the ground. What makes a veteran, a patriot, burn the flag that he was once so proud to fly? To answer that, the other thing you need to know is that Sidney Street was African-American. And that evening of June 6, 1966, as he listened to the radio, he heard news of another African-American man, James Meredith, a civil rights icon, the man who had integrated the University of Mississippi. He heard that James Meredith had just been shot just outside of Hernando, Mississippi on the second day of his march against fear. That march was for the proposition that he should be able to exercise his rights openly in his own country. When a police officer saw the smoke from the burning flag, he stopped his car to investigate. He asked Sidney Street if he had burned the flag. And Street said, I burned it. If they let that happen to Meredith, we don't need an American flag. Sidney Street was arrested and charged with disturbing the peace and with violating New York's flag desecration statute. James Meredith and Sidney Street encountered the same truth on the same day, that having a right on paper isn't the same as being able to exercise it. I'm Ken White, and this is Make No Law, the First Amendment podcast from Pokehat.com, brought to you on the Legal Talk Network. This is Episode 6, Street. my fellow citizens. The orders of the court in the case of Meredith versus Fair are beginning to be carried out. Mr. James Meredith is now in residence on the campus of the University of Mississippi. 
This has been accomplished thus far without the use of National Guard or other troops. 1966 was a transition point for the civil rights movement. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 were towering achievements, but they were having only limited impact on actually improving the day-to-day lives of real people. That led to tension. Tension between the civil rights movement and the government, and tension within the movement itself. I talked to Professor Aram Gudsuzian. He's the chair at the History Department at the University of Memphis, and he's the author of a book called Down to the Crossroads, Civil Rights, Black Power, and the Meredith March Against Fear. I asked him to set the stage to describe the different conflicts into which James Meredith marched. One part of it was the increasing alienation of the federal government from the civil rights movement. The federal government had been somewhat of a reluctant ally to the movement uh, over the course of the mid-1960s, but it had helped to pass the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in 64 and 65, which of course promised to transform the Jim Crow South over the coming generation. And yet there was this sense of alienation on the part of the federal government and particularly President Lyndon Johnson. One aspect of this was the riot in Watts uh, in August of 1965, soon after the passage of the Voting Rights Act. And from the perspective of Johnson, he thought, you know, we've done all these things for African Americans, and yet there is this violence going on that is alienating to the movement and, and it very much frustrated him. From the perspective of African Americans on the ground, particularly outside of the South, they said, look, our lives haven't changed uh, despite all the promises of the civil rights era. Uh, We continue to suffer from poverty. We continue to suffer from second-class citizenship. Uh, Soon after that was the government's report by Daniel Patrick Moynihan. uh, That was somewhat of an investigation into urban poverty, but its analysis centered on the black family and the destruction of the black family since uh, going back to slavery. To many black activists, they read Moynihan's report as an attack on them and blaming them for the ills that had been imposed upon African Americans. Uh, so there was this growing distance between the liberal institutions of the government and activists on the ground. But there wasn't just tension between the civil rights activists and the government. There was also tension within the civil rights movement. Tension over competing strategies and visions of equality. Within the movement itself as well, there had always been different political approaches among civil rights activists. A group like SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, its emphasis had always been on grassroots activism, on the leadership on the ground, on trying to empower people in local communities, long-term sort of work like that. Martin Luther King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference tended to be more uh, oriented around mass demonstrations uh, that compelled media attention, nonviolence that brought national attention and arouse the moral conscience, which led to transformative legislation. And those two groups had worked hand-in-hand and and had complemented each other and been in creative tension throughout the years of the movement. But increasingly, there was a tension. And for groups like SNCC, there was some questions about what to do with their white activists who are part of the organization. You know, their goals had always been black empowerment, not necessarily racial integration as the first step, but rather empowering African Americans. For a group uh, like King Southern Christian Leadership Conference, on the other hand, They tended to uh, think in more sort of uh, integrationist terms and really nonviolence as a way of life. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference's motto was to free the soul of America. They had these sort of broader agenda from that. Then there were groups like the NAACP, primarily legal organizations and lobbying organizations. And and Roy Wilkins was increasingly critical of what he saw as the direction of groups like SNCC. Some of these tensions could be seen Just the week before James Meredith started his march, there was a a White House conference on civil rights hosted by Lyndon Johnson. Uh, And it brought together 
activists, and business people, and black leaders, and, and others who were interested in the civil rights struggle. And SNCC, Stokely Carmichael's organization, uh, decided to boycott the White House conference. They said the government isn't really interested in solutions to helping us. Uh, we're much more interested in black empowerment on the ground. Other groups like CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, participated in the conference but were quite critical of it. It was at this moment that James Meredith stepped back into the limelight. Meredith, with the backing of the federal courts, the NAACP, and the Kennedy administration, had become the first African-American to attend the University of Mississippi. He was the focus of everything from news to riots in 1961 and 1962. But then he traveled to Africa and went to law school, and he fell out of the public eye. In June of 1966, he came roaring back with his own mission, a mission that wasn't part of anyone else's agenda. James Meredith was really a man on his own. He did not fit into any of the established organizations. He didn't fit into any ideological box. In some ways, you could classify him as a conservative in the sense that he was truly individualistic in terms of his approach. And he was a man who really believed in his own sense of destiny. He he sometimes referred to it as his divine responsibility. He really marched to the beat of his own drum, and he was not really part of any established organization whatsoever. The Meredith March Against Fear was all about taking the promises of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act and trying to make them real. James Meredith wanted to see if the rights that the federal government was promising to African Americans were rights that they could actually exercise. Meredith announced that he was going to march from Memphis to Jackson, about 220 miles down Highway 51, with the notion of accomplishing two things. One was that he would encourage African Americans to register to vote. This is, of course, a year after the passage of the Voting Rights Act. We're just starting to see the first uptick in black voter registration in Mississippi, which was at the lowest in in the entire country. And the second related goal to that was to conquer the culture of fear in the South, and particularly in Mississippi, among many African Americans. You know, they lived under racial intimidation. And Meredith, of course, is famous for four years earlier, having been the African-American man who integrated the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss, which, of course, prompted a constitutional crisis, riots, the involvement of the Kennedy administration, and became a major media flashpoint in the midst of the civil rights movement. Uh, So James Meredith was quite possibly among whites, the most hated black man in Mississippi. So if he could march 220 miles from Memphis to Jackson, then other black people could register to vote and participate in the democratic process. That was his vision. There was a third sort of unstated aspect of his mission as well, and that was to further his own political career, that he thought this would be a way to build his political base, to establish himself as a leader in Mississippi. At the time, he was a law student at Columbia Law School in New York, but he hoped to return to Mississippi and run for lieutenant governor in the upcoming years. The Meredith March Against Fear started small, but it got bigger until he was shot. Uh, You know, it's interesting, when Meredith starts his march on June 5th, 1966, it's a Sunday, and it compels some media attention, but it's more like this quirky sideshow almost. Uh, You know, people are aware of it, but Meredith, he's not part of any major civil rights organization. Since his time at Ole Miss, he somewhat drifted out of the public consciousness because he'd spent some time in Africa, and then he was in law school, and he wasn't in the media eye in the way that he had been a few years earlier. And yet, you know, he was on the front page of the New York Times when he started his march and so on. That was on the first day of the march. On the second day of the march uh, is June 6th. It's a Monday. 
he is uh, at that point enters the state of Mississippi and he reaches the first town of Hernando where he gets a warm reception from African Americans and hostile glares from whites and he feels pretty uh, you know sort of happy about the situation uh, and he continues to march south he's thinking of stopping soon and a white man a man named Aubrey Norville uh, emerges from a gully and shouts Meredith's name and shoots three times and wounds Meredith James Aubrey Norvell used a shotgun loaded with birdshot. He wounded Meredith, but he didn't kill him. All of this happened in front of police and reporters and cameramen. The result was chaos. I'm hitting the leg, I know, and in the head. Ain't nobody gonna get me in the car. Here it comes right now. Come on, man. Come on, man. With news reporters and photographers and audio on the scene, the story raced around the world. There is an immediate national media reaction to Meredith's being shot. One element that really sort of accelerates the sense of black rage in the aftermath of Meredith's shooting is a mistaken news report by a cub reporter for the Associated Press who overhears another reporter say that Meredith has been shot in the back of the head. And he thinks that he heard Meredith was shot dead. And he reports that to the AP Bureau in Nashville, which then circulates it nationwide. By the time AP corrects the mistake about a half hour later, it's news that has been circulating on television, on the radio, and it's filtering throughout the country. So that sort of accelerates the sense of rage uh, upon the shooting of Meredith. It becomes at that moment almost like another iconic instance of white violence against African Americans, like the fire hoses in Birmingham, like Bloody Sunday on the Selma Bridge. You know, James Meredith's photo of him writhing on Highway 51 after getting shot, it's a photograph that later wins a Pulitzer Prize. But at that moment, it's splashed across the front page of every newspaper in the country. It's in papers around the world. So it becomes this incredibly intense flashpoint for the frustrations of African-Americans at their continued second-class citizenship. Sidney B. Street of Brooklyn, New York, was one of the countless African-Americans who heard the news. He felt the outrage shared by so many. You know, the radio reports filter into, into Harlem, New York, and there's a sense of boiling rage on the streets. There's some whites who are in Harlem at the time and who sort of get a sense that they should leave and take cabs downtown. There are street corner speakers who are talking about this as an outrage. Throughout the country, you're hearing from, you know, sort of uh, local NAACP leaders or black activists who said, I've been nonviolent up through this time, but I, but I can't. You can't expect me to be nonviolent anymore. How much more can we take? Uh, there's a speaker in Los Angeles who says, you know, I've, I've turned the other cheek enough. I don't have any other cheeks to turn. So Sydney Street's action is definitely in line with this larger sense among many African Americans that this is the kind of the final straw. You know, their faith has been broken in nonviolence. Their faith has been broken in the democratic process. So James Meredith, a man who's supposed to be equal before the law, a man who's supposed to have constitutional and statutory rights was shot for exercising them. And what about Sidney Street and his rights? The police arrested Street and charged him with disorderly conduct. They also charged him with violating the New York malicious mischief statute. That statute makes it a crime, and I'm quoting, 
to publicly mutilate, deface, defile or defy, trample upon or cast contempt upon, either by words or act, the American flag. Sidney Street went to trial. The jury acquitted him of disorderly conduct, probably because there was no evidence that anyone got upset by what he did. But under that malicious mischief law, they found him guilty. Sydney Street appealed all the way to the United States Supreme Court. A lot of the briefing in the case, a lot of what the government and Street's lawyers wrote, was about whether the government could prohibit the burning of the flag or whether that act was protected by the First Amendment. Street's legal team was adamant that it was protected speech. Thus, the fact that flag destruction is in some metaphysical way an affront to our symbolic sovereignty cannot and ought not to form a basis for punishment. For if we concede that there are certain political symbols which are above desecration, we open the door to drastic suppression of our right to criticize the state. There is no logical differentiation between burning the flag and burning an effigy of the president. Our flag is really the effigy of a nation. As such, it is not immune from symbolic criticism. And the government was just as passionate. In concluding, it is respectfully prayed that no constitutional guarantee be permitted to shield the Appellants Act from punishment. And whether this court shall or shall not attach the quality of symbolic expression to the burning of the flag of the United States It is, nevertheless, so patently offensive to, and sacrilegious of, the deep traditional feelings of the American and the very spirit of this country's history, that it would be unthinkable to shelter such conduct under the protective mantle of our treasured Constitution, with which the flag is inseparably fused. To do that would make constitutional guarantees the very means of self-annihilation. Strangely, though, by the time they reached oral argument before the Supreme Court, Sydney Street's lawyers no longer argued that flag burning was protected speech. They conceded they weren't making that argument. Instead, the issue was whether Sydney Street was convicted for flag burning or for words. For the words he spoke about the flag when he was arrested. He said, if they let that happen to Meredith, we don't need an American flag. The complaint against Street quoted those words. The government introduced them as evidence— The statute refers to words. The New York law says you can violate it by casting contempt by words or act on the flag. Here's how Justice Abe Fortas put it. Maybe that's that's right, but uh, the statute certainly uh, doesn't seem to be uh, phrased in those terms. The statute does not uh, uh, confine itself to the act of burning or desecrating the United States. Uh, together with uh, such words or other conduct as would indicate that uh, this act is being done uh, 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 contemptuously of the flag. Would you agree with that? The statute talks about, makes it a crime to use the words, not merely as uh, evidence of intent, of the intent with uh, which the action was done. Mr. Broadbart, let us suppose that you had a case that involved only words, words expressing the utmost contempt and hatred for the American flag. Now, uh, would, would those words 
standing alone fall within the uh, condemnation of this statute. Yes, Your Honor. Now that's the nub of the trouble here. Perhaps the only person who thought that flag burning might be protected by the First Amendment was Thurgood Marshall, the court's first African-American justice. He questioned the government's lawyer to try to tease out what interest the state has in prohibiting flag burning. The statute requires the act to be public. Was it about preventing public disturbances, or was it something else? Forty people, Your Honor. Is it in the record? Yes, yes, Mr. Justice Marshall. Suppose it burned it at night and there was nobody there. Well, it would have to be the word "public" connotes, say, presence of people. Would that mean how many people? Enough people to start a riot. A reasonable amount of people. Perhaps five people well, would be I enough. I thought the definition of a riot was three or more. Well, I would say that three or more people would have to be present. I would also say that 30 to 40 people. So we, really don't, we really don't know what the statute means by public, do we? Well, the statute does not define public. We must go back to the case law on that. The word public signifies the presence of a reasonable number of persons which might give rise to the danger that the statute intends to prohibit. Well, I could see a little difference myself between burning the flag on my front lawn and burning it in Yankee Stadium. Could you? No, I cannot. You could. Except that the chances for a disturbance might be greater in Yankee Stadium. But the disturbance is there nevertheless if near your lawn there are other persons present. Suppose they're all friends. Friends may too retaliate in the Suppose burning of the American flag. Suppose they all agree with me. Pardon, Your Honor? Suppose they all agree <laughs> with me that the flag should be burned. Well, then there's another need then. then. Then the flag must be protected from people who agree to burn a flag contemptuously. Where is that in the statute? The statute does not say that. But The Supreme the Court wasn't ready yet to decide that burning the flag was protected speech. They wouldn't do that until Texas versus Johnson in 1989. But in April of 1969, the Supreme Court overturned Sidney Street's conviction. First, the court found that the way the statute worked and the way Sidney Street was charged, they couldn't tell whether he was convicted for burning the flag or for speaking words against the flag. Here's Justice Harlan. In the face of an information explicitly setting forth appellant's words as an element of his alleged crime, and of appellant's subsequent conviction under a statute making it an offense to speak words of that sort, we find this record insufficient to eliminate the possibility either that appellant's words were the sole basis of his conviction, or that appellant was convicted for both his words and his deed. So the court turned to the ultimate question— Can the government punish someone for using words to defile or disrespect an American flag? The answer was no. We come finally to the question whether, in the circumstances of this case, New York may constitutionally inflict criminal punishment upon one who ventures publicly to defy or cast contempt upon any American flag by words. We have no doubt that the constitutionally guaranteed freedom to be intellectually diverse or even contrary, and the right to differ as to the things that touch the heart of the existing order, encompass the freedom to express publicly one's opinions about our flag, including those opinions which are defiant 
are contemptuous. We add that disrespect for our flag is to be deplored, no less in these vexed times than in calmer periods of our history. Nevertheless, we are unable to sustain a conviction that may have rested on a form of expression, however distasteful, which the Constitution tolerates and protects. So however much we revere the flag, under the First Amendment, the government cannot punish us for saying things against it. There's a lot of very stirring prose about the American flag in the government's brief in this case. Language about what people have done defending the flag and what it means to Americans. But we have to think about Sydney Street's question. What does the flag mean if some Americans can't exercise the rights it represents without being shot? What is more offensive to the American idea? Sydney Street burning the flag? or the thing that provoked him to do it. Sure, I mean, James Meredith is a military veteran himself. James Meredith is a, is a man who's a patriot. He loves the idea of the United States, and he just wants the United States to live up to its ideal. So for a Sydney Street, another military veteran, another person who has no sort of track record of participation in radical or militant politics, he has no association with that. This is an incident that is breaking his faith in America, essentially. Sidney Street returned to his life as a family man and bus driver. James Meredith recovered, and he took up the march again, right where he had left off. He's still alive today in Jackson, Mississippi, and I hope he's living without fear. asking you, our listeners, to send in First Amendment questions you'd like answered on the podcast. Thank you for your responses. Here's an email from Ben Olson. Ken, I've been wondering, the word Congress in the First Amendment, what is it doing? It seems like most, if not all, law ignores the Congress part, and it's considered unconstitutional for state and local governments to also make laws restricting speech. Why does it mention Congress specifically? That's a good question, Ben. The explanation is something that lawyers learn about, but many non-lawyers don't. The answer lies with the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, and something called the Incorporation Doctrine. The First Amendment does say, Congress shall make no law. It's right in the title of this podcast. It's part of the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments to the Constitution, ratified in 1791. It's the only one of the Bill of Rights that explicitly mentions Congress or explicitly limits its scope to the federal government. But pretty early on, the United States Supreme Court held that the Bill of Rights only limited the federal government, not the states. In 1833, in a case called Barron v. Baltimore, the Supreme Court said that the restrictions on government power in the Bill of Rights only limited the government of the United States, not the government of the individual states. So it's the United States that can't make a law abridging free speech, or jail people without due process, or search people unreasonably. It was the state constitutions that were designed to protect people's rights from action by the states. But then, after the Civil War, 
1868, America adopted several constitutional amendments prohibiting slavery and starting the long and winding road towards prohibiting official racial discrimination by the states. One of those was the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment says that no state can deprive a person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. In other words, states, now the Constitution limits what you can do to people as well. But what does that mean? What does it mean that a state can't deprive you of liberty without due process? What is liberty? Well, the Supreme Court began to decide gradually that the liberty protected by the 14th Amendment includes most of the rights in the Bill of Rights, those first 10 amendments. Put another way, the 14th Amendment incorporates those rights. So, for instance, in 1925, in a case called Gitlau v. New York, the Supreme Court said, We may and do assume that freedom of speech and of the press, which are protected by the First Amendment from abridgment by Congress, are among the fundamental personal rights and liberties protected by the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment from impairment by the states. This is the incorporation doctrine. Not all the rights have been incorporated. For instance, the Fifth Amendment right to be indicted by a grand jury if you're charged with a felony has never been incorporated, and so it only applies to federal prosecutions, unless your state constitution happens to require it. The process is still ongoing. The Supreme Court only recently found in a case in 2010 that the Second Amendment right to bear arms was incorporated under the 14th Amendment and therefore applicable to the states. I'm leaving out a ton of nuance and interesting history, but that's the basic idea. So next time someone on the internet says, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law, so it doesn't apply to state law, you'll know why they're wrong. That happens every day, and I die a little every time. Thanks for the question, Ben. In this series of podcasts, I'll be telling more stories behind important First Amendment decisions. If there's a case you want to hear about or a First Amendment question you'd like answered on the podcast, drop me a line at ken at popat.com. Thanks for listening. You can find documents and cases mentioned on this podcast at popat.com or legaltalknetwork.com. If you liked what you heard today, please remember to rate us at Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Lastly, I'd like to thank our participants, voice actors, producers, and audio engineers for their participation. My guest, Professor Aram Gutsuzian. Our voice actors, Madison Markell as lawyer for Sydney Street. Jeremy Church as lawyer for the government. Jonathan Amarillo as Supreme Court Justice John Marshall Harlan. Producer, Kate Nutting. Executive producer, Lawrence Coletti. Research assistant, Jordan Miller. And last but not least, Music, sound design, editing, and mixing by Adam Lockwood and assisted by Kelly Kramerick. Excerpts on the oral argument in Street vs. New York provided by Oye, a free law project by Justia and the Legal Information Institute of Cornell Law School. See you next time for Episode 7, Fire in a Crowded Theater. expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Popat, 
Legal Talk Network or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer, please. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.